Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon to you. Nate says, gee, everything seems so much louder when we get on the air. And I said, well, that's because there's a lot of folks my age out there that... Need a little extra help in the hearing department. I'm just kidding. How are you? Good to have you with us today on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Is it is really August the 18th? Wow. Amazing how time flies. Lots going on in the world, to be sure, and we're going to spend some time tonight talking about it. I want to begin first with an update. We've been following the story out of Afghanistan, and the situation there continues to um, de- deteriorate. The Taliban now strengthening their grip on the capital city by setting up checkpoints around the city perimeter. Mike Bauer has more details. Many local residents were reportedly still struggling to reach the airport on Wednesday. Taliban militants have set up checkpoints around the city and were turning back some Afghans. Reports say those checkpoints were where residents' smartphones were being searched for any signs of communications in English and for any sign of illicit material. President Biden's national security advisor said the Taliban have agreed to allow safe passage from Afghanistan for civilians struggling to join a U.S.-directed airlift from the capital. But reports also say that the Taliban have set up checkpoints at entrances to Kabul's airport, where they have reportedly whipped and beat Afghans trying to cross and make an escape. I'm Mike Bauer. Yeah, this is not sounding much like the kinder, gentler sort of Madison Avenue PR presentation that we were hearing just a few days ago. In fact, the latest reports on top of that include the fact that some 2,000 people have evacuated from Afghanistan over the last day. Those are 2,000 U.S. citizens, 8,000-plus remain there. And, of course, the question of uh, how difficult is it going to be for them to evacuate, don't know. We do know this, that there's a history here. And, you know, you you ever hear the phrase, uh, have you ever heard the phrase, when someone shows you who they are, believe them? Yeah, in this case, we've not done a good job of that. Brigitte Gabriel joins us, founder and chair of Act for America. She is considered one of the leading terrorism experts in the world, provides information, insight, and analysis on the rise of the global Islamic terrorism movement. She is also a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author, been a guest on the program many times. And, Brigitte, we always appreciate your thoughtful insight. Um, this is a situation where we heard uh, a spokesman yesterday for the Pentagon say nobody could have imagined that it would unravel like this. This. But I have to wonder just how true is a statement like that. It seems to me, given the fact that Kabul fell, the whole country fell for that matter, in barely five days, that uh, if we didn't see this coming, shame on us. Brigitte, did we lose you? Nope, I think we might have uh, lost her there. Nate, you want to try her on another line? Well, he uh, works to see if we can't get her uh, line restored here. Um, One of the other issues at hand, of course, is what's going to happen to the women of Afghanistan, who you know, under their reign of terror for the better part of 20 years, suffered quite significantly. Well, many nations now are joining the call 
and demonstrating the concern for the situation facing women and girls across Afghanistan. Countries including the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. have released a joint statement calling on leaders there to guarantee women and girls will be protected. But, of course, what kind of a guarantee can we really truly believe? Brigitte Gabriel now with us. Brigitte, sorry about the uh, interruption there phone-wise. This is a situation, as I mentioned, where uh, some opine that we couldn't have possibly seen this coming. But I've got to believe, given how rapidly the scenario disintegrated, that if we didn't see this coming, shame on us. Nope. We had no no luck with her on either either line. Did we not pay the phone bill this month? Is that the deal? <laughs> maybe they maybe they need to drop another quarter inside of the uh, the phone there. I can I can hum a few bars. There, this is the moment in live radio where you're hesitant to do uh, a move into something entirely different because in a nanosecond they're going to say, "Oh yeah, there she is," and then uh, suddenly she's not, or maybe she is. I tell you what, I got the plan. Guys, why don't we go to a commercial break early, and we'll see if we can't figure out uh, in which slot we need to drop the additional uh, 25 cents, and we'll be back with more here on the Wednesday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Well, we ran out, got two fresh aluminum cans and some string, and we've got it uh, connected between us and Brigitte Gabriel. So we're going to try this once more with feeling. Brigitte, uh, to you and to our listeners, I appreciate the patience. Sometimes the uh, the computer-related technology doesn't always <laughs> doesn't always live up to its expectations. Uh, and, and speaking of things not living up to expectations, boy, that certainly seems to be the case as to what transpired, although as, as I had mentioned before the break, one of the remarks came from the Pentagon yesterday, and even the president has suggested, well, nobody really could have seen this coming. But I have to wonder, for things to fall this hard, this fast, in barely five days, if we didn't see this coming, isn't it fair game to say shame on us? Uh, absolutely. Shame on us. Shame on the commanders. Shame on Milley. Shame on the Secretary of Defense. Shame on the Secretary of State. Shame on the President. Shame on the commander of U.S. and NATO troops in Afghanistan, General Austin Scott Miller, who's got his hands on the pulse for the last 10 years. He said he was shocked by how quickly the Afghan National Army had surrendered to the Taliban. Well, you know what? I don't know whether he's a three-star general four-star general or a 100-star general, but a guy who professes to be shocked by how quickly the Afghan National Army has surrendered to the Taliban has no business being a general. We must hold them all accountable. This is a failure with such incredible proportion that's going to reverberate worldwide, and we're going to have to deal with it for not only years, but decades to come. One of the big concerns here, and I'm sure you share this, is whether or not it's going to be a repeat performance of the kind of suffering that the Afghan people went through at the hands of the Taliban uh, 20 years ago. And that's largely, and we've heard these promises, oh, we want to have more inclusive approach to government. We want women to be involved. We're not going to force them to wear burqas. We're not going to insist that they give up their education. And yet we're already seeing cases throughout Afghanistan. Afghanistan in just the last six days where women are being beaten. In one case, a report of a woman that was killed because she was not wearing a burqa. It seems to me that while 20 years 
might have passed, this is the same old Taliban, am I right? Well, they are the exact same old Taliban. Actually, uh, they named their state the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and announced it from presidential palace in Kabul. That was the name of the Taliban government ousted by the U.S.-led forces back in 2001. So the same old Taliban that used to stone women in football fields, that used to whip women walking down the street because their burqa was short enough and didn't really drag and cover their heel, those are the the same Taliban. And what's so scary right now is that uh, Afghanistan, under the Taliban, will become the epicenter for jihad around the world. Right now, we are seeing chatter that's tenfold what it used to be just three days ago, where the uh, different jihadi websites now are popping up, different jihadi social media, who are saying they are on their way to Afghanistan to take part of the jihad, to take part of the victory, and to build the Islamic State. So basically, what we're having right now in Afghanistan is the formation of an ISIS-like caliphate, except it's the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And this time, we're not going to have any intelligence on the ground. We're not going to have any informants on the ground. And we're going to be completely blocked out. And this is if we don't lose 15,000 people who will be massacred in Afghanistan, Americans who are not able to get out unless, you know, God willing, with a miracle, we'll be able to get every single one of them out. There is concern here, too, that not only were they able to essentially overrun the government without firing a single shot, practically speaking, but I have to wonder um, if there is close attention being paid by Islamist militants across the globe looking at this and saying, ah, here's the trick. You don't have to fire a shot. You just have to be patient. And if you're patient long enough, you'll win. I'm wondering from your perspective, how much does this embolden terrorists and those that have designs on both going after the West, as they did almost 20 years ago, September? Um, and is there a sense that this is a renewed uh, caliphate? Uh, well, look, uh, Craig, I mean, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed said that back 20 years ago. He said, you may have the clocks, but we have the time. So they know that the West and America are the, the immediate gratification crowd. They, 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 they think in very short terms. They're so used to everything quickly, now, you know, drive through. If the Internet doesn't load, you know, in, in 30 seconds, oh, my gosh, my Internet is not working. The rest of the world operates very differently especially in these backward areas like Afghanistan and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and that part of the world. They operate very differently. They knew they have the time on their side. Look, this is, this is a group of uh, uh, basically tribes that have defeated the British Empire, the Russian Empire, and now America, the superpower. So they know they can do that. And no, the lesson is not being wasted on, on, on Islamist jihadists worldwide because actually what this is showing them is not only time is on their side, but they're saying this is what happened when you remain faithful to your faith, Allah will reward you in the end. Mm. And so they are using it as look, Allah's reward. Look how Allah is rewarding the Mujahideen. Look how Allah is rewarding the faithful and granting them the desire of their hearts. So for them, it not only uh, 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 validates their faith, it validates their tactics, it validates their patience, and, and also they know, Greg, that a 
America is not paying attention to winning any wars. America has not won a war in three quarters of a century. We have a wussified military brass uh, that is more concerned about critical race theory in the military and teaching men that men can give birth and talking about transgender equality and LGBTQ rights instead of learning how to fight wars. And to give you a perfect example, uh, uh, instead of doing their job at the embassy in Afghanistan, understanding our enemy, and this is just two months ago, so they knew that we were getting ready to leave. So you would think they would be very busy and really establishing relations or working to secure the embassy. No. What they were posting on their Twitter feed was all about recognizing LGBTQ. And here's a quote. Here's literally the Twitter feed that the embassy in Afghanistan posted in June. The month of June is recognized as LGBTI Pride Month. The United States respects the dignity and equality of LGBTI people and celebrates their contributions to the society. We remain committed to supporting civil rights of minorities, including LGBTI persons, hashtag Pride 2021, hashtag Pride Month. This is what they were posting in June. I'm sure the Taliban were really impressed and shaken when they read where our priorities lie. I do hope that they've managed to evacuate the embassy's LGBTQ flag before the sacking started. This is where we are, and that's why our enemies are not afraid of us. You know, you look at a scenario like this, and I know that when President Trump announced um, the the troop de-escalation with the goal toward uh, eventually evacuating that the the reasoning much as what Biden put forward the reasoning is well we've been there 20 years uh, we didn't go there to build a nation we went there to essentially uh, you know punish the people that attacked us and shut down uh, the the ability um, uh, of terrorists to wage further war against us and now we've accomplished that and uh, doing what we're doing right now in kind of a quasi-occupancy position that can go on for, you know, not just another 20 years, it could go on forever. And so now is as good a time as any to get out. And I thought at the time, as I heard initially President Trump articulate that, I thought, you know, announcing that we're leaving and giving the Taliban an opportunity to sort of start making their plans doesn't seem like a really good idea here. So so let me ask you this. If, if sort of this unraveling um, was inevitable, uh, was this the wrong decision to pull out? Where do you think the biggest mistake was? Is it in the timing or in our failure to really understand not only the enemy here, but to understand exactly what the goal should have been in the first place? What do you think? Uh, all the above, but the biggest mistake is the execution. Look, President Trump got our troops out of Somalia. In Christmas, I have to tell you, I have a family member, um, you know, full disclosure, I have a family member who was in charge of pulling our troops out of Somalia. And he did that during Christmas. So he was not with us for Christmas. He was actually living in a container in Africa, in Somalia, because President Trump said, by this date, by January 15th, I want all troops out of Somalia. 
You didn't hear any disasters coming out of Somalia. You didn't see the images we're seeing now out of Afghanistan. It was done in an orderly fashion under certain conditions that when the conditions were met, everything was cleared, everything was done, everything was clean. Right now, it's the execution. President Trump would have never allowed the execution of the withdrawal out of Afghanistan to happen the way it happened. The Taliban knew, understood, and feared President Trump. They knew when he told them, we're going to leave in an orderly fashion if you harm any of our people, if you harm any of our troops, if you do anything, you will pay a price. We will destroy you. And they knew that he meant it. He killed Soleimani. He bombed the daylight out of Syria. They knew he's going to follow up on his word. The plan was for Afghanistan. First, you evacuate all our people. Then you evacuate and destroy all our ammunition, you destroy all the tanks, you destroy all the warehouses, then you pull out everything, you close our embassy, you destroy the records, and then you pull out the military that is left, and you leave only certain amounts of groups, basically to gather certain intelligence and to oversee the transition. That's how you withdraw out of a war. And I agree with President Trump. We are, we have no business nation building in Afghanistan. These people hate us. These people hate our guts. They they are not a country. They are a bunch of tribes. They are a bunch of little warlords. Who could care less about Afghanistan? Afghanistan is an idea in our mind as a country. Afghanistan, once the king was destroyed and ousted, became nothing but a bunch of tribes who defeated, again, they defeated the British, they defeated the Russians, and now they defeated America. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I know it's painful for some people to hear that, and and I want to show respect for the Afghan community here in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is one of the largest outside of Afghanistan itself. But the reality, as Brigitte Gabriel just pointed to, is that this history is not just the last 20 years or 40 years going back to the Russian occupation. There's well over 100 years of this. Um, it has been largely, as Brigitte points out, a concept. But in terms of being a true, unified, functioning country, it hasn't been that in over a century. And it's a, it's a terrible set of circumstances because there are many people that, that are caught up in the middle of this that didn't desire any of it. And yet here they are. And, and to your point, Brigitte, with regard to the management or lack thereof in relationship to the withdrawal, I, I know that the administration has bristled, bristled at comparisons to April 30th of 1975 in Saigon. But if you lived through it or remembered watching the news reports, it is eerily familiar that all of this wasn't organized, that the embassy wasn't shut down in a orderly fashion and our personnel removed well in advance of the announcement and beginning of the official troop withdrawal, uh, I, I find utterly shocking. And it seems as if we went into a country that was already a shambles and sadly are leaving it in worse shape in which we found it. And regretfully, America over recent uh, decades has had... Uh, kind of a pattern of this behavior, haven't we? Uh, yes, we have. I mean, you know, we are, again, like I said, we have not won a war in three quarters of a century. Our military brass have not been able to win a war, yet they are able to sit here and lecture us about critical race theory and equality and gender equality in the military while letting the country fall apart. Maybe we need to bring one of the Taliban members, a goat herder, to teach them lessons at West Point on how to win wars. Mm -hmm. The reality is, uh, is uh, the truth is 
is not pretty. The truth at this point is very clear. We are failing as a country. Our, our military brass leaders who are only concerned about their next lobbying job when they retire or their next rank so they can put an extra star on their shoulder. We have had a military run by political correctness, by people who are afraid to do what they need to do. And it started under Bush. It started under Clinton, uh, uh, Clinton and then Bush. And then you had Obama. That's when we started seeing the real freefall of our military. Trump was able to fix the situation only for a little bit. That's why the world feared us under Trump. And now we are again in freefall. And this is why we must demand accountability of our leaders. We must demand accountability. People must be engaged. If you are listening to this interview right now, no matter where you are, whether on the Internet or in San Francisco, join us. Go to actforamerica.org. Now is the time for action. Actforamerica.org. We've got over 1.6 million members who are on fire for America right now. We need to save our country. This issue is not a Republican or a Democrat anymore. This is about America. This is about saving America. This is about the humiliation of America on the world stage. This is about a country that is not accountable to its citizens right now. They are spending our money without any accountability. They are destroying our economy. They are betraying our allies. They are humiliating our military. They are putting shackles around the ankles of our brave men and women in uniform while the brass at the top is making political decisions. This is not the America that our founding fathers envisioned. If my message resonates with you, go to actforamerica.org and join us. Actforamerica.org. One of the big concerns here, and you touched on this, Brigitte, and that is the notion of also how that this is going to unravel a lot of our intelligence gathering in that part of the world. We had friends and allies that were providing information, boots on ground. I mean, that's certainly the way we were successful in, in locating Soleimani. And, and now, having lost that very strategic geographical position there, you're, you're certainly not going to get a lot of support out of a country like Iraq or anywhere else in that immediate region. That leaves us essentially with one ally, Israel. But in terms of allies, boots on the ground, within an Islamic country, um, we're going to find ourselves very much at a disadvantage here for lack of information, which may mean while we have enjoyed relative peace since the tragic events of September of 2001, my fear is the mismanagement of this. And I know nobody likes to think about an ongoing war that we've already been at it for 20 years. And, you know, at some point we have to count the cost. And that's very true. But we also need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and very strategic about what we do and why we do it. And if anything, what seems to be lacking from this movement is any sense of plan or significant strategy other than saying, pack your bags, gang, we're headed out of town. Brigitte Gabriel, we appreciate so much your time and your insights today and, and your patience, too, with our phone systems earlier. 532 from KFAX Traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You might recall as a child... Or maybe as an adult too. Maybe you've had it had the, had have been on the receiving and giving side of the talk. As I'm doing my air quotes here that you can't see, it's the talk, of course, regarding the birds and bees discussion, and that's a discussion that's obviously changed drastically 
in more recent times. Uh, Not only has the subject matter become far more complicated and confusing, the sexual imagery that children are confronted with day by day, they're quite frankly surrounded by in sports, entertainment, music, and even in education, which may run contrarian to what most parents think is happening. And I say that because the discussions that take place, especially within the public classroom, uh, are far different than perhaps we had as children growing up, where we were uh, essentially taught that, uh, you know, you, you wait until you're married and that there are inherent risks involved in premarital sex, uh, running the gamut of STDs to obviously unplanned pregnancy. And yet in more recent times, as this subject has become more and more complex, some parents are just giving up. They don't know what to say, and so they say nothing. And kids are reliant upon either their peers or organizations like Planned Parenthood with a clear agenda for their information. Stepping into this vacuum are friends at Real Options, and Becca Cha joins us now. Becca is Director of Education with Real Options for Women. Becca, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us tonight. Hi, Greg. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here tonight with you guys. This is a, a, a oftentimes a, a difficult topic to discuss. Not only is it awkward for the children on the receiving side, it's awkward for parents to give it. And, and, and sadly, as we're learning, more and more often, uh, children are getting their information from the media, from their peers, or other sources that may not altogether be giving them not just the full story, but in fact, um, may teaching them perhaps more about things like um, um, sexual risk reduction as opposed to the overall idea of avoidance. How just dangerous is this lack of appropriate and full disclosure dialogue between parents and kids these days? Yeah, um, great question, uh, uh, Craig. I think you had mentioned, you know, risk reduction versus avoidance. And, you know, that is, you know, two differing public models um, when it comes to addressing risky sexual teen behaviors. Um, And what's predominantly being taught in our schools and through the media is this idea of risk reduction, which is basically saying, you know, well, you're going to do it anyways. So let's focus on teaching you how to make it slightly safer. And um, it's assuming and normalizing that teens will engage in risky sexual behavior. And it applies a very limited approach by focusing only on things such as contraceptives, right? And so when you take parents... um, out of that conversation, you're essentially throwing your teens out um, with these types of um, uh, messages, and that employs that limited approach, and they can get the wrong idea and be swayed by what culture at large is saying. Um, and so we really um, want to come on the opposite end of that, and what we employ is what we would call um, risk avoidance education. And, you know, r- uh, research and evidence tells us that when it comes to dealing with risky behaviors, that's really the way you should go, right, um, because the evidence follows that. And it's saying, how do we eliminate all risk and make sure that our teens are um, reaching optimal health in their lives. And, you know, so critically important, Becca, because, you know, I, I liken it to being the moral equivalent of, do, do you want to teach your child how to avoid walking off the bridge? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you want to teach your child, well, in the event that you happen to f- fall off the bridge, here's the way you can fall in a manner that will lessen the blow. Uh, there won't perhaps be quite as many broken bones uh, when, when you go splat at the bottom end. It would seem to me that it's far smarter and far more mm-hmm. caring to teach our kids saying, hey, look, there are inherent risks involved when you're you're running across a bridge that has no railings on it. So better that we teach you how not to fall off the bridge than rather what to do once once you've done so. And I know that the the, the yeah. rejoiner on that, typically from organizations like Planned Parent, is, well, kids will be kids. They're going to do it anyway. So at least mm-hmm. we're teaching them how to do it safely. And I liken that to the idea of, well, I'll let them teach them how to safely fall off the bridge as opposed to avoiding stumbling yeah. off in the first place. And, and when you couple that with the resistance that parents are getting from all of these images everywhere else, it's difficult for parents today to really have the talk with kids. Yes, and I think a lot of parents also feel like um, a bit overwhelmed because they may feel like they don't have all the answers or they don't have enough information to provide um, you know, their talk, let's say, with their students. And that's why Real Options is here, because not only do we speak to students when it comes to risky teen behaviors, we also um, have a huge program focused on empowering parents to be able to have these ongoing conversations with their teens, because, you know, it's not a one-and-done conversation anymore, right? Um, it's a constant communication that needs to be ongoing. And so we want to be there um, as an extension and just say, hey, look, you don't have to feel like you're solo doing this. Um, there's a lot of resources out there that can help you have these healthy conversations with your students. And in fact, we find that students still view um, their parents as a huge um, piece um, and um, just important when it comes to making these decisions in their lives. And I think it's it's fair, Becca, for for parents to say, I I feel totally ill-equipped to have this dialogue, Mm -hmm. particularly when you consider the fact that they are up against so much in terms of the influence of peer pressure, what's being taught in the schools, what the kids see on mm-hmm. television, movies, the iPhone, you know, their Android, <laughs> everywhere they're surrounded by these messages. And here a parent is yeah. trying to come in and essentially counterbalance all of that with discussions about uh, risk avoidance and, and, and appropriate behavior based on one's age and certainly one's marital mm-hmm. status. And that's where this program that Real Options is offering for parents, uh, Real Talk for Parents, is so, I believe, critically important. Tell us a bit about the program and how can parents take advantage of it? Yeah, um, so like I said before, we provide a whole host of different topics, such as how to have these conversations with your students, as well as information into what is being taught predominantly in our public schools, as well as um, what's being said, you know, cultural messages out there. We are also there to um, help support parents um, when it comes to, you know, some dicey topics that typically parents don't want to address. Um, so we want to be there to support families as they go through that. Um, additionally, we um, we have um, just a lot of different ways to connect through churches, communities, as well as we're able to go into schools um, and bring these messages if a parent is able to connect us. And so really, we want to be um, a part of that whole conversation in various um, arenas. Um, with parents when they're talking to their teens about this. And, and is part of this not just educating parents so that they can educate their children, but also helping parents sort of better broadly understand the challenges mm-hmm. here and what their options are? For example,
example, a lot of parents, I would imagine, Becca, have no idea, not just in the content of the sex education that their children receive in public schools, the so-called California Healthy Youth Act, but probably also were not fully aware of many of their opt-out options. If they discover the curricula runs contrarian to their moral beliefs and what they're raising their children to to behave uh, in their individual family, I would imagine a lot of parents are not even aware of what their options are. Yeah, we do find that a lot of parents don't realize that they have certain rights and authorities. And so we also want to empower parents to see like what their um, rights are in terms of being able to ask the school to see the curriculum or to opt their students out and what options there are out there for their students otherwise. Uh, you go into schools as well and help provide the children with a deeper understanding. Um, and, and this can help counterbalance, as I said before, a lot of the negative and contrarian messages that they receive elsewhere. If parents want to get more information, I know that you provide a, a program um, for parents. How can they get more details? And what if somebody listening says, gee, I had no idea that this information was available. How can we get them to come and share with our students? Yeah, um, you guys can go to our website, friendsofrealoptions.net, um, or you can email outreach at realoptions.net. In fact, um, we also have a parent workshop coming up um, on August 26th, and that we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the California Health Youth Act and what's being taught and spoken about um, at our public schools and what parent um um, rights are and how to, you know, like a call to action in terms of what parents can do to kind of come against that. Lots of great resources available. We talked last week about Rachel's Vineyard, the event that's coming up for couples August the 27th through the 29th. And then uh, this particular workshop, again, you mentioned uh, Becca will be the 29th. Is that correct? Oh, the 26th. 26th, I'm sorry. I, I'm on the wrong day, the wrong end of that group of dates. <laughs> and again, information can be had online at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. This is a vitally important resource. And for every parent out there who dreads the birds and bees discussion or think it's just a one-off conversation, you can get away with 20 minutes and be done. Oh, no, no, no. It's gotten far more complicated these days. And so uh, understanding more about um, not not only what the challenges are, but how to best educate your teen, critically important. And uh, all of these resources available to you through Real Options. And again, information available on the web. You can also sign up for that Parents Workshop, The Real Talk for Parents, on August the 26th by going to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. While you're there, get information, too, about the Rachel uh, Rachel's <coughs> pardon me, Vineyard event uh, coming up for couples on August the 27th through the 29th. Our thanks to Becca Cha for being with us. Becca, you've been great. Thanks so much for the time. And again, we'll point folks toward friendsofrealoptions.net to get more information about the upcoming Real Talk for parents and also resources available for kids too. friendsofrealoptions.net. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You wonder what goes on behind the air here or behind the scenes when we're doing other things on the air, just chatting with my engineer about travel and entertainment. And boy, certainly people, if they're going to a place like the Big Apple, love to go see a Broadway show. And who on a given Friday evening wasn't, wouldn't want to spend a little time with the family watching a great movie? Well, the annual Life Fest 2021 is... Uh, 
Uh, normally would say coming to a theater near you, but even more convenient than that, coming to your own home theater, meaning your uh, TV set, and we're going to get more information about that and other things. Brian Johnston joins us. He, of course, is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And in many respects, uh, the, the brains behind the 11th Annual Life Fest Film Festival and uh, Brian Ryan, as always, great to have you with us. Much to talk about tonight, but let's first talk about Film Festival. I understand uh, this year with the scenario with COVID and, and uh, whatnot, all available online. Makes it easy for folks to enjoy some great pro-life, life-affirming themed films. Yes, Craig. In fact, the stream at home has become the way to do film anymore, and you can binge. Uh, Life Fest, as you said, our 11th year. We have a lot of great supporters in Hollywood. Kevin Sorbo. Vanna White, folks you don't typically talk about. The goal of Life Fest is really to mainstream the pro-life message and mission, if you will, into Hollywood as part of our culture. And that's what Hollywood does. Hollywood expands and amplifies and digs into culture. The most important aspect of American culture is respecting innocent lives and especially the lives of the vulnerable. So it's been a great film festival. This year, you can stay home. Typically, people have had to travel to be there on Life Fest weekend. It's a long drive for many, and then you got to get a hotel. Well, on August the 26th, you can start binging. August 26th to 31st, some great films. Of course, Roe v. Wade, and uh, it's been talked about quite a bit. So Roe v. Wade is there. Make sure you can view and vote for it, but there's many, many others. One of our goals is to get new filmmakers, and that's what a good film festival does. It introduces films to the world. It introduces filmmakers to their new public, and we've got some excellent shorts. Uh, we get 300 films submitted per year, and our team has to go through that, and uh, it's kind of hard to get. So we've sent you the best of the best from throughout the world. Most this year are from the U.S., and you go to lifefilmfest.com. That's lifefilmfest.com. You can see what's available. If you purchase your ticket early, you can get a discount on a, on a pass for all the films, or you can purchase certain blocks. But it's a great opportunity to see what's coming up and how our culture can actually be impacted for life through Hollywood. There are good guys in Hollywood. You bet. And uh, this is a great way to come out and show support and to deliver an important message to uh, Hollywood filmmakers of the desire and interest by folks to enjoy this kind of quality life-affirming message. And the nice thing is, as Brian points out, you can enjoy it all from the convenience of your uh, your own living room. So you can wear your fuzzy bunny slippers, <laughs> pop your own popcorn, and be quite at home. Lifefilmfest.com Details and information, again, lifefilmfest.com. Brian, I want to pivot to another topic here before our time runs out. We have been uh, discussing uh, with uh, some increased focus, especially as the date nears, the upcoming recall election, which is now less than a month away. And, you know, I I think if you and I had had, uh, colluded together uh, six months ago and said, Brian, Craig, what do we think here amongst ourselves? We probably would have said, well, uh, not a real good chance in seeing a change in leadership 
in Sacramento. You know, the, the Democrat Party and a guy like Gavin Newsom pretty well entrenched in Sacramento. But that's changing, and it seems as if day by day it is changing to the point where initially Gavin and the Democrats were kind of ignoring this whole recall election, and now they're starting to not only pay attention, but they're starting to get worried. That's right, and I think it's critically important that listeners realize that this is not a competition between those who want to replace him. The way this works is different than a typical election. We must have more than half of the voters who vote vote yes on recalling Gavin Newsom. If that doesn't happen, then everything else is irrelevant. But if one half of voters... 50% plus one vote yes, we call him. Then there's a second question. We've talked about that, and there are 46 that initially filed. 42, I think, are are on it right now. They'll say, yeah, I'll I'll be governor. I'll be governor. We've talked about one, a mutual friend. And again, California Pro-Life has not endorsed any particular candidate. We'll explain why. But uh, right now, Larry Elder is leading. But you need to know, he's not running just against Gavin Newsom or just against those other candidates. He is only relevant unless 50% or more of the voters vote yes. And so what we're doing, California pro-life is intentional. We have 16 pro-life candidates that want to replace him. And they come from different places. This coming weekend, uh, there are some places that are, there are folks that are radical leftist Catholics that are pro-life that are running. One professor from Loyola Marymount. He's running. He's pro-life. Well, we gave him an interview on Life Matters. Then uh, another kind of radically called himself an Old Testament Christian. Robert Newman is from Riverside. He's run for governor many times. He's kind of a radical Christian. The reason we're giving people a voice is that as many people as possible have to vote yes Then after that, the highest vote getter would replace Gavin Newsom. And so you and I are familiar with, and he is very pro-life, Larry Elder. uh, And Larry is a Salem host. But we need other people who have never heard of Larry. There's other people who may not be inclined to support Larry, but they should support some other people and vote yes to replace Gavin Newsom. That first vote of getting people to say, yes, replace Newsom, that's essential. And when that happens, then it looks like Larry Eller's in a good spot. We don't know what remains. We literally know that the pop media and the unions and the Democratic Party machinery is already gearing up for ballot harvesting, for doing all the things that are a little bit questionable to make sure that there's a no vote on on Newsom. They want to keep him because he spreads money around, not